just an unbiased description of who a person is. Like, you know, you can't even trust what you read on on Wikipedia to be at least nonpartisan. I'm trying to learn about John Eastman, who is a, a law professor and was working as Donald Trump's lawyer around the time of the, the 2020 election. And uh, you can't even, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to read, I'm, I'm reading an article from NPR, you know, National Public Radio, which is, you know, you would think nonpartisan, unbiased, but no, I'm just reading through it. I'm getting frustrated at the language that they're using because, okay, the January 6th committee got these memos from Eastman to the Trump team. And they're, they seem to me to be very innocent. But the whole job of the January 6th committee is to blow everything out of proportion and make it seem like, you know, it was the insurrection that they've been claiming it is, was, has been for the last two years, year and a half. But I just, I, just to give you an example I'll read a bit from this this NPR article headline, Who is John Eastman, the Trump lawyer at the center of the January 6th investigation? By Deepa Shivaram. At the center of Thursday's House hearing investigating the January 6th insurrection was a lawyer central to former President Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election, John Eastman. After Joe Biden won the election, Trump took several routes to try to overturn the election. He tried lawsuits, which failed. He tried pressuring state officials, which also failed. And he ultimately tried to get former Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the results when the electoral votes were to be certified, it, were to be certified on January 6th, 2021. The last plan was drafted in a memo by Eastman. Thursday's hearing revealed more detail about Eastman's efforts to push bogus legal arguments even after the attack on the Capitol. So right there, calling them bogus legal arguments. A legal argument is a legal argument to be ruled on by a judge. And we know judges did not hear these arguments. They were dismissed on standing. So definitely not for an NPR journalist to decide whether they're bogus or not. Eastman has a long background in conservative law, having clerked for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas in the late 1990s. Another one of these angles that the January 6th committee is supposed to accomplish is demonizing Clarence Thomas, a Supreme Court justice whose wife was communicating with Eastman and others about potential legal uh, paths to not overturning, but correctly certifying the election. Greg Jacob, Mike Pence, formal, former counsel, and the other witness at Thursday's hearing, said there was relentless pressure on Pence to try and overturn the election on January 6th. On January 6th, there was nothing to overturn. January 6th was the day the election was to be certified which means established for one side or the other. 
who it, it, post January sixth, you would have to oh, you would have an election to overturn. For January sixth, there was nothing to overturn. This is what frustrates me about the language and the tactics of the left. They they use these. They they twist their words to suggest that something is one way when it's actually the opposite way. And not just in this specific example. Two days prior to the insurrection, Jacob said he and Pence met with Eastman and were presented with two of his theories. And I'll get into the theories. Pence could reject the electors on January 6th and essentially declare Trump president, or he could declare a 10-day recess and send and send the slates back to the disputed states, even though no state was disputed. Now, see, this is an outright lie. So let's go over to uh, this Washington Examiner piece, which actually provides links to the memos from John Eastman to the Trump team. And the piece reads, Eastman wrote two memos outlining his plan a short one and a long one. They each had the same premise. There was a conflict over who had won the presidential election in several states, including Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. We'll get into uh, the long memo, which also has all of the legally sketchy things that these states did to uh, fortify the election. But let's look at the short memo. The first line to contradict Miss Shivaram's claims in her bogus article. The uh, privilege, so this, this memo, the, the quote short one, headline, privileged and confidential, January 6th scenario. First line, seven states have transmitted dual slates of electors to the president of the Senate. So one slate to vote Democrat and the other slate to vote Republican. Now, and they did this because of the obvious election ir irregularities that were identified leading up to January 6th, 2021. So I'm sorry, Miss uh, Deepa Shivaram, but why would uh, an undisputed state be sending two slates of electors? Hmm. It's an interesting question, isn't it? But I want to get into this long memo because it's really interesting. See, John Eastman goes through this illegal conduct by election of, uh, officials is the first point in the long memo. And it reads, quite apart from outright fraud, both traditional ballot stuffing and electronic manipulation of voting tabulation machines, Important state election laws were altered or dispensed with altogether in key swing states and or cities and counties. When the laws at issue were specifically designed to reduce the risk of fraud in absentee voting, those violations are particularly troubling. A sampling of the more significant violations is as follows. Georgia. Secretary of State altered signature verification requirements via an unauthorized settlement agreement. Now, again, this is illegal conduct, not just something they did that was 
naughty or frowned upon. Number two, under the Georgia title, portable polling places targeted to heavily Democrat areas. Number three, uh, refusal by the state judiciary. Refusal by the state judiciary to even assign a judge to hear the statutorily authorized election challenge brought by the Trump campaign on December 4th. They didn't even assign a judge to hear the challenge. But we, we definitely shouldn't be suspicious. We definitely shouldn't march to the Capitol to uh, peacefully and patriotically make our voices heard, right? The second item is Pennsylvania, or I should say item B. Following a collusive suit brought by the League of Women Voters against the Democrat Secretary of the Commonwealth seeking to require that absentee ballots not passing the signature verification process be given notice and an opportunity to cure. Cure means fix. I don't know why they got to use weird words. The secretary unilaterally abolished the signature verification process altogether, issuing a directive that not only was it not required, it was not even permitted. She then filed an emergency writ action with the partisan elected Supreme Court to ratify her elimination of that statutory requirement. Illegal. The state legislature is responsible for doing things like that, not the secretary of state. And the corrupt judiciary in that state should be impeached and probably imprisoned. The PA, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, agreed with the secretary but went further, also eliminating the statutory right of of candidates to challenge illegal ballots during the absentee ballot canvassing. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court next eviscerated the statutory requirement that candidates be allowed to have election observers, holding that one individual, quote, in the room, even if at the entrance of the football field-sized Philadelphia Convention Center was sufficient. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court then eviscerated the remaining validation requirements in state law, holding that the statutory requirement that a voter fill in, sign, and date the absentee ballot certificate was unenforceable because fill in was ambiguous and because the date requirement served no purpose in its view. So corrupt partisan courts steered this election in their favor. Under Wisconsin, number one, the use of unmanned drop boxes not authorized in Wisconsin law. Number two, the use of so-called human drop boxes, also not authorized in Wisconsin law and utilized in democracy in the park efforts coordinated by Dane County, Madison, election officials, and the Biden campaign. They allowed election officials to add add missing information to absentee voter or witness declarations contrary to law, which says such ballots must not be counted. Dane and Milwaukee County clerks recommended that voters fraudulently claim to be indefinitely confined in order to avoid voter ID requirements. Does this strike you as uh, free and fair and unmanipulated and definitely not fraudulent election? Personally, I'm not convinced and I'm getting a little pissed off. Michigan, 
mailed out absentee ballots to every registered voter, contrary to statutory requirement that voter apply for absentee ballots. Did you get any ballots in the mail for people that didn't live at the house? Remember all of those stories about people getting ballots for residents that hadn't lived there for 10 years? I heard a lot of them. Michigan established remote drop boxes only in heavily Democrat precincts without the statutorily mandated video surveillance. Absentee ballots delivered at 3 a.m. were counted without affording candidates the opportunity to observe, contrary to state law. And this kind of touches on the, the 2,000 mules angle. They've got the cell phone tracking data. The, you know, the producers of this movie, 2,000 mules, paid for the cell phone tracking data so that they could see the mules going to all of these drop boxes, 10 different drop boxes. I mean, that was the criteria. If the people were going to be included as evidence of fraud in this movie, they had to go to 10 or more drop boxes. So one of the arguments against that is, well, why don't you have the same guy on surveillance at multiple drop boxes? And that's the reason. Remote drop boxes only in heavily Democrat precincts without the statutorily mandated video surveillance. Arizona. Federal court reduced Arizona's 29-day before election registration requirement. So if you wanted to vote in the election before 2020, you had to have registered to vote at least 29 days before the election. So by dropping this requirement, basically, fraud was legal. You could come in, register to vote, and vote in the same day. So, say, hypothetically, you just crossed the border that night, or somebody brought you in on a bus. You could register to vote, cast your vote, and then go back to Tijuana or <laughs> wherever they cross in Arizona. I have to know now. Uh, San Luis. It's the San Luis border crossing in Arizona. At least, I mean... That one seems to be the closest to major high highways. There are several. But now you know that. For Nevada, the machine inspection of signatures, rather than the human inspection of signatures mandated by state law, was allowed. So why would any self-respecting state officials with any integrity allow these elections to be certified when these laws were broken? Well, because they're cowards. The memo continues, because of these illegal actions by state and local election officials, and in some cases, judicial officials, the Trump electors in the above six states, plus in New Mexico, met on December 14th, cast their, electoral, their electoral votes, and transmitted those votes to the president, president of the Senate, Vice President Pence. There are thus dual slates of electors from seven states. So there you go. No contested states, Deepa Shivaram says. But it turns out there were dual slates of electors from seven states. But just suggesting 
that this is a is a potential cause to dispute the election and to challenge the election uh has made John Eastman guilty of insurrection when when really all he has done is is suggest that there may be a potential legal pathway but where it gets sticky is when they begin talking about the the uh electoral count act of 1887 which is likely unconstitutional and this is really the only light at the end of the tunnel for the January 6th sham committee if it's an act that means it's in there and even if it's unconstitutional see this is why it's such a mess and this is why there are so many arguments and it's so easy for the January 6th committee to put this propaganda together because it's confusing and there's a lot of red tape and I think this all exists just to make it difficult to rectify a potentially stolen election. And since our country is really controlled by rich elitists that are unelected and operate behind the scenes and pull the strings of our politicians through donations to their campaigns and their charity organizations and probably their offshores bank accounts. This is what we get. We get, we have a a vice president that's too much of a coward to do the right thing. We have judges that are cowards or corrupt completely and not interested in doing the right thing, not interested in following the will of the people. And when we went down to the Capitol on January 6th to peacefully and patriotically make our voices heard, it was twisted into basically a, the second civil war. And there are still people sitting in jail uh, being charged only with illegal entry into the Capitol. And that should be a crime. I'm not opposed to that. And But now the left is getting a little bit of a taste as well because there was a team of journalists from the Stephen Colbert show who were just arrested for being in the Capitol unlawfully. And, and what's messed up about that, I'm not trying to have the back of Stephen Colbert, who's a partisan hack, or his producers, who are also probably partisan hacks. I don't know. I don't know them. And now those guys are in jail. And rightfully so, I think. What were they doing there? There's not really any information on it aside from uh, they they claimed to an aide for a Democratic congressperson that they still had interviews to conduct. And then but then they got caught in there at 830 at night unlawfully. Well, what were they doing in there? Why? Why? It, at 830, everyone in my house is asleep. But there's producers for Stephen Colbert's show running around inside the Capitol doing what? Planting listening devices? Hiding cameras? Spying? It remains to be seen. We'll probably never find out. Why? Because these are on these these people are on the right side. And by the right side, I of course mean the left side. If you're on the left, you can do no wrong, apparently. If you're on the right, you will rot in jail for protesting 
what seems to be an illegal election. I mean, illegal things were done in many of these states. How, how can you argue that it was an illegal election? But also, how can you argue that it wasn't a legal election because there has been no investigation into these things? They're still claiming that there's no evidence of widespread fraud without widespread investigation. And it's probably going to happen again in this November. But I think if everyone goes to vote, and I mean everyone, We've got a better shot. But this is another thing that we've been fighting against since before 2020. And that's getting these states to commit to having fair, honest elections by doing simple things like clearing up the voter rolls of people that have moved out of state or died. And there are still hundreds of thousands of people on these voter rolls and organizations like Judicial Watch are having to sue these states to get these names pulled off the voter rolls. Now, if they stay on the voter rolls, that means that 400,000 people could vote illegally, for example, and there's no easily detectable way to discover that the votes were illegal. But if we all go out and vote, and then there's 400,000 fraudulent votes on top of it, well, that's pretty easy to identify that 1.2 million people voted in a place with only 800,000 registered voters. We better do an investigation. That still depends on a justice system that has an ounce of integrity, which we have not. I'll be back. Goodbye. Goodbye.